Hello, my lovelies, and welcome back to Bedtime Stories with Celosia Crane and our second Welsh mythology episode. Before we dive into the story, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about the first tier that you can subscribe to to become a patron and support not only this podcast, but also my work as a speculative fiction author. If you're not familiar with that term, it's a broad term that covers both fantasy and science fiction. Currently, I am working on a gaslight fantasy in which I'm mixing together Greek mythology and Victorian England, so I'm having a lot of fun with that. However, back to Patreon. So, the first tier that you can become a patron at is $1 a month. Pledging your support at the $1 tier, our nymph tier, gets you access to that Gaslight Fantasy, as well as access to my Mythology Monday post series, where I introduce you to a new mythological creature every Monday and tell you a little bit about their history. Now, without further ado, let's get back to our story, and this week, We are reading the story titled, The Touch of Clay. Long, long ago, before the Kimri came into the beautiful land of Wales, there were dark-skinned people living in caves. In these early times, there were a great many fairies of all sorts, but of very different kinds of behavior, good and bad. It was in this age of the world that fairies got an idea riveted into their heads, which nothing, not even hammers, chisels, or crowbars, can pry up. Neither horsepower, nor hydraulic force, nor sixteen-inch bombs, nor cannonballs, nor torpedoes can drive it out. It is a settled matter of opinion in fairyland that, compared with fairies, human beings are very stupid. The fairies think that mortals are dull-witted and awfully slow when compared to the smarter and more nimble fairies that are always up-to-date in doing things. Perhaps the following story will help explain why this is. These ancient folks who lived in caves could not possibly know some things that are like ABC to the fairies of today. For the Welsh fairies, King Puck and Queen Mab, know all about what is in the telegraphs, submarine cables, and wireless telegraphy of today. Puck would laugh if you should say that a telephone was a new thing to him. Long ago, in Shakespeare's time, he boasted that he could put a girdle round the earth in forty minutes. Men have been trying ever since to catch up with him, but they have not gone ahead of him yet. If, only three hundred years ago, this were the case, what must have been Puck's fun when he saw men in the early days working so hard to make even a clay cup or saucer? These people who slept and ate in cave boarding houses knew nothing of metals or how to make iron or brass tools, wires or machines, or how to touch a button and light up a whole room, which even a baby can do now. There is one thing that we, who have traveled in many fairy lands, have often noticed and told our friends, the little folks, and that is this. All the fairies we ever knew 
are very slow to change either their opinions, or their ways, or their fashions. Like many mortals, they think a great deal of their own notions. They imagine that the only way to do a thing is in that which they say is the right one. So it came to pass that even when the Kimrik folk gave up wearing the skins of animals and put on pretty clothes woven on a loom and ate out of dishes instead of clamshells, there were still some fairies that kept to the notions and fashions of the cave days. To one of these came trouble because of this failing. Now there was once a pretty nymph who lived in the Red Lake, to which a young and handsome farmer used to come to catch fish. One misty day, when the lad could see only a few feet before him, a wind cleared the air and blew away the fog. Then he saw near him a little old man standing on a ladder. He was hard at work in putting a thatched roof on a hut which he had built. A few minutes later, as the mist rose and the breezes blew, the farmer could see no house, but only the ripplings of water on the lake's surface. Although he went fishing often, he never again saw anything unusual during the whole summer. On one hot day, in the early autumn, while he stopped to let his horse drink, he looked and saw a very lovely face on the water. Wondering to whom it might belong, there rose up before him the head and shoulders of a most beautiful woman. She was so pretty that he had two tumbles. He fell off his horse, and he fell in love with her at one and the same time. Rushing toward the lovely vision, he put out his arms at that spot where he had seen her, but only to embrace empty air. Then he remembered that love is blind, so he rubbed his eyes to see if he could discern anything. Yet, though he peered down into the water and up over the hills, he could not see her anywhere but he soon found out to his joy that his eyes were all right, for in another place the face, flower-crowned hair, and her reflection in the water came again. Then his desire to possess the damsel was doubled, but again she disappeared to rise again somewhere else. Five times he was thus tantalized and disappointed. She rose up and quickly disappeared. It seemed as though she meant only to tease him, so he rode home, sorrowing, and scarcely slept that night. Early morning found the lovelorn youth again at the lakeside, but for hours he watched in vain. He had left his home too excited to have eaten his usual breakfast, which greatly surprised his housekeeper. Now he pulled out some sweet apples, which a neighbor had given him and began to munch them, while still keeping watch on the waters. No sooner had the aroma of the apples fallen on the air than the pretty lady of the lake bobbed up from beneath the surface, and this time quite near him. She seemed to have lost all fear, for she asked him to throw her one of the apples. "'Please come, pretty maid, and get it yourself,' cried the farmer." Then he held up the red apple, turning it round and round before her to tempt her by showing its glossy surface and rich color. Apparently not afraid, 
She came up close to him and took the apple from his left hand. At once, he slipped his strong right arm around her waist and hugged her tight. At this, she screamed loudly. Then there appeared in the middle of the lake the old man he had seen thatching the roof by the lake shore. This time, besides his long snowy beard, he had on his head a crown of water lilies. Mortal, said the venerable person, that is my daughter you are clasping. What do you wish to do with her? At once, the farmer broke out in passionate appeal to the old man that she might become his wife. He promised to love her always, treat her well, and never be rough or cruel to her. The old father listened attentively. He was finally convinced that the farmer would make a good husband for his lovely daughter. Yet he was very sorry to lose her, and he solemnly laid one condition upon his future son-in-law. He was never, under any pretense or in any way, to strike her with clay or with anything made or baked from clay. Any blow with that from which men made pots and pans and jars and dishes, or in fact with earth of any sort, would mean the instant loss of his wife. Even if children were born in their home, the mother would leave them and return to fairyland under the lake, and be forever subject to the law of the fairies, as before her marriage. The farmer was very much in love with his pretty prize, and as promises are easily made, he took oath that no clay should ever touch her. They were married and lived very happily together. Years passed, and the man was still a good husband and lover. He kept up the habit, which he had learned from a sailor friend. Every night, when far from home and out at sea, he and his mates used to drink this toast. Sweethearts and wives, may every sweetheart become a wife, and every wife remain a sweetheart, and every husband continue a lover. So he proved that though a husband, he was still a lover, by always doing what she asked him and more. When the children were born and grew up, their father told them about their mother's likes and dislikes, her tastes and her wishes, and warned them always to be careful. So it was altogether a very happy family. One day, the wife and mother said to her husband that she had a great longing for apples. She would like to taste some like those which he long ago gave her. At once, the good man dropped what he was doing and hurried off to his neighbor, who at first presented him with a trayful of these apples. The farmer not only got the fruit, but he also determined that he would plant a tree and thus have apples for his wife whenever she wanted them. So he bought a fine young sapling to set in his orchard, for the children to play under and to keep his pantry full of the fine red-cheeked fruit. At this his wife was delighted. So happy enough, in fact, too merry to think of anything else, they both, husband and wife, proceeded to set the sapling in the ground. She held the tree while he dug down to make the hole deep enough to make sure of its growing. But farmers are sometimes very superstitious. They believe in luck, though not in puck. Some of them have faith in what the almanac and the patent medicine may say, and in planting potatoes according to the moon, 
but they scout the idea of there being any fairies. With the farmer, this had become a fixed state of mind, and now it brought him to grief, as we shall see. For though he remembered what his wife liked and disliked, and recalled what her father had told him, he had forgotten that she was a fairy. With this farmer and other Welsh mortals, it had become a habit, when planting a young tree, to throw the last shovelful of earth over the left shoulder. This was for good luck. The farmer was afraid to break such a good custom, as he thought it to be. So merrily he went to work, forgetting everything in his adherence to habit. He became so absorbed in his job that he did not look where his spadeful went, and it struck his dear wife full in the breast. At that moment she cried out bitterly, not in pain, but in sorrow. Then she started to run toward the lake. At the shore she called out, Goodbye, dear, dear husband, then leapt into the water, where she was never seen again, and all his tears and those of the children never brought her back. And that is the end of The Touch of Clay. I hope you enjoyed our foray into Welsh mythology, and am excited to bring to you the other three stories that we get this month since January has five Saturdays. Bedtime Stories with Celosia Crane is produced solely through the support of my patrons on Patreon. To become a patron for as little as $1 a month, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash Celosia Crane. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to connect with me further, you can find me on Instagram at Celosia Crane underscore author. Link is in the show notes.